I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. So every now and then uh, when I do these interviews, I get someone who's very comfortable in front of the microphone uh, and comfortable with being interviewed on their background and their area of expertise. And those conversations are always great because everything can go very smoothly and the conversation can flow and go deeper. Uh, But this episode is special because the interview subject today has about a decade's worth more experience with interviewing than I do. (laughs) Uh, If you are listening to this podcast, uh, there is a very, very good chance that you are familiar with Normati and with Babylon FM. Uh, For those who don't know, Babylon FM is the first all-English radio station in Iraq. Uh, Noro helped establish it in 2012, and he has served as host of the Breakfast Club Morning Show ever since. Uh, He's now taking a step back. Uh, He's not not leaving, uh, which he corrected me on, (laughs) but taking a step back from his work at Babylon FM to focus more on his own NGO, Shlama Foundation, uh, which is what we get into more in the latter half of the conversation here. Um, I'll just say... Overall, I think Noor is a really interesting guy to talk to, I think, because his evolution since coming to Erbil uh, has also kind of reflected the evolution of the city itself. And I'll just say generally that his attitude and perspective makes for what I think just really one of the most charismatic, positive and progressive minded individuals, not just in media, but in general in the region. Uh, So with all that said, I'll just turn it over to him now. Here's Normati. I'll I'll wait until your cue. Uh, You know what? We're recording right now. So this is all. (laughs) All right. We're hot. Well, Uh, welcome to Inside Kurdistan. I am the guest today. My name is Noor. And it's a pleasure to be here in Kurdistan. In see, he's a natural, and my boss is also in the in the room filming us uh, for social media. So this is this is very fun. You got to do it fully. You got to do it fully. <laughs> I'm going to include all of this. I don't care. So this is really <laughs> exciting. I haven't been interviewed in a long time. Um, it's weird, right? It is because yeah. I'm usually on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully, this will be one of many many interviews you do, and. Uh, us here from uh, from Erbil, from the Kurdistan region, we love it when we have people from different communities that come in here and contribute. So I want to first start off with from one host to another host, the best of luck <laughs> Cheers. with I your show it. and uh, with anything else in regards to Kurdistan in. Yeah, of course, man. I actually have a question just to start off. Your interviews, you were you were saying your Kurdish is broken and all this. How many interviews do you do in Kurdish and Arabic versus English? I mean, Babylon mm-hmm. FM is in English, but... Yeah, so Babylon FM is in English, so I've, I've done about close to 2,000 interviews in the span of 10 years. Wow. Yeah, and those were all in English, but... Uh, about three, four, three, four years ago, the uh, TV channel went up, Babylon TV. Mm-hmm. That one was in Arabic to cater to the entire Middle East community. So because it was in Arabic, I, my show was also in Arabic. But the the idea was like it's a comedic way. The host doesn't speak the oh. language, <laughs> and he's trying to interview people who he doesn't understand what they're saying fully. So it comes out of like comedic, like Jimmy Fallon style. Got I did, it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. I like that. So that I did about a hundred episodes, about a hundred, hundred twenty episodes. More, actually. 150 episodes of Arabic. So, yeah, it's always fun getting to know about people. So I'm, I'm actually jealous of you because now you're doing <laughs> it here. Um, and it goes on Spotify and everywhere else, so it's pretty cool. 
I know we're 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 getting things off the ground. Actually, it's starting to we're starting to line up some really interesting guests. Uh, so to pivot back, uh, I'm curious about your own background because I know that you grew up in Michigan, but I'd like to hear a little more about sort of your family's background and and what it was like growing up there. Um, um, my dad's from Koya, so that's within Erbil Governorate mm-hmm. between Erbil and the Hook. Uh, sorry, between Erbil and Slemani, and my mom's from Zaho. So they came in the middle in the 80s to try to have a family, which is in Erbil. Uh, but unfortunately, because of uh, everything, Saddam, war, this, that, in the 90s, my parents decided to uh, flee and do the traditional route of taking a boat between Turkey and Greece. Mm-hmm. Miraculously made it. And uh, we ended up being in Detroit. So I grew up in Detroit, but I'm not from Detroit. I'm from here. But I'm this part of this new generation where uh, not, we're not just one thing. We're not Eastern. We're not Western. We're mixed, so we got a little bit of Western and Eastern in us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got, well, it's a diasporic population. You've got the, you know, for example, Babylon, you've got the Breakfast Club. Well, yeah, the idea with that uh, is actually to serve the Eastern community with a Western vibe. So mm-hmm. it was, it's still part of this idea of this hybrid future that we see in, 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 in down the line. Which one of you are? Uh, which one are you from the Breakfast Club? Are you Charlemagne? You... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Angela Yee. No, I'm that. I'm. Um, what is it? DJ Envy. I'm You're the main, Envy. Yeah, because oh, I'm the okay. main host. Okay, got you, got you. So I'm the one that sets it up, the mics and everything, and uh, set up the interviews, and so that's that's how it is. Yeah. You ever want to meet the Breakfast Club? I don't know why I'm going in this direction with this. Interview. Well, it's look, you say that because the show is all, our show is also the Breakfast Club. But it's funny about that is we named our show the Breakfast Club before they did. No way. Yes. Oh. But eventually, of course, they were, they were so pop. They became so popular. Our show just stayed within oh. our city, unfortunately. But we can never stand up. To, maybe to maybe them. maybe they'll hear this. I I don't know. The I don't think fired. they will. I don't think they will. We started the show in 2012. Um, they started, I want to say, in early 2013. Or late 2012, but I know for a fact I looked this up. We did the Breakfast Club, and it was good. <laughs> but who's counting? Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. So you okay? So you grew up in Detroit. Yeah. So uh, that's the thing, you know, when you're young, when you arrive in America at a young age, you become full American. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was 24, I, I, there was nothing Middle Eastern about me, unfortunately. So I was everything American. I liked, you know, American football. I liked, you know, it was just like American references and. But uh, eventually, after I graduated from college, I went through this phase, which you probably went to through as well, which is uh, lost in life. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I think everyone's got that. Our parents <laughs> used to talk about this thing about what is it, midlife crisis in their forties, mm-hmm. and ours, it's this postgraduate crisis that we seem all to have. Quarter life people. crisis. It's a quarter life yeah, crisis. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, for me, it was more of an identity crisis, and just didn't know where I belong. What's the purpose of my life? There's really few things you can do in in, in America, at least. And specific in Detroit, where there's actual strong purpose in your life. So, and this whole thing about identity, and you know, it was it was less diverse in America back then. Talking about this was you know late '90s, uh, late '90s, yes, late '90s, early 2000s. So, eventually, I decided to uh, just to visit uh, the original place that I'm from, which I had nothing, no knowledge about. Mm-hmm. And I just liked it so much. Slowly, I felt like I belonged here. So that's what I've been 14 years on. So when you first came back here, what were the original like sources of tension that you uh, like, for example, linguistic boundaries and, and cultural issues that you like ran into coming back here? I wouldn't call it tensions, but a totally different world. Yeah. Imagine uh, being used to malls and cafes and we had no cafes here. 
now today our bill is bustling with western stuff but in 2008 there was nothing um and life was so much harder for example we didn't have something as simple as siplets heating and cooling units that actually work uh during generator time which you know with modern technology now we're having better lives and it was hard in every aspect i could tell you used to some of these things that you're used to not there anymore the language barrier very difficult job couldn't find anything how could you that Erbil was still trying to build up so everything kind of piled up but there's this thing that I kind of like is in that I like to be challenged I like to be handicapped for some strange reason hmm. because it interests me I get bored of redundancy I get bored of just uh, knowing what to expect so I kind of liked all the hardship that was available here in 2008 uncertainty security wise was still kind of dangerous Erbil was coming off of a year of the largest terror attack where close to 200 people died mm -hmm. and um, so all these things uh, made life difficult and that's why you didn't see so many foreigners living here but now of course I'm just so happy to see uh, my city being in a position where it is now where it's not as difficult for somebody listening to this podcast in Europe or in America to think about moving here. And do you, okay, you've kind of ridden that wave. You've seen Erbil really evolve. What are some of the things, uh, good and bad, that you've seen in Erbil develop here? Oh, man, you're going to put me <laughs> in that position? No, I mean, like, not good and bad, but just things that, like, you've noticed that are different that you're like, oh, I kind of miss the old, you know. That happens with every city. I'm from Austin. Austin's fundamental. If you know Austin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Austin, fundamentally you, yeah, different. Yeah, you guys were like a town, and now it's, we were a town when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah we are not a town anymore. No, no. And I, I kind of miss it. I miss town Austin. Well, there's lots of uh, similarities to that here, where you know life was a lot simpler back then. Um, we were not on our phones. We didn't have smartphones. Mm -hmm. 2008, 2009, 2010. Phones came here pretty late, so. Um, I miss that where we were actually, and I actually loved that here. That was one thing that I fell in love with because in America, everybody's just by themselves, not really social interaction between family. Here, that was one of the things I fell in love with where we're actually sitting with each other, looking at each other and talking in terms of what other things I, I miss um, or, or I regret seeing how the city's heading to. I'm loving how we're all advancing as a society, but there's a few things that are kind of I'm, I'm really concerned with. For example, I'm seeing parents here talking to their kids in English, people mm -hmm. from Kurdistan, I mean. That's, that's painful because the kids are not learning their mother tongue, and it shouldn't be like that. And their parents are trying to practice their English on their kids when they don't know they're depriving their kids with an important skill that they need in the future. I was blessed for my parents to try to, talk to me in our own language, the Syrian language, but mm -hmm. at the same time, they would also throw in some Kurdish and Arabic, and that gave me a base for me to easily to adapt and develop in my city here. So that's one thing that I'm always concerned about. Um, the list goes on in terms of some of the things. For example, of course, unfortunately, some major things such as water and electricity that still haven't been addressed here. Um, some of the things that we all know. But in terms of the uh, positive things, oh my God, I will, I'm not going to spend too much time, but I will focus on one thing. And this might not be, a lot of people agree with that, but that is, I'm actually so happy to see what a strong economy Erbil actually has. And I know that's not a popular opinion, but I invite you to take a timeline machine with me to 2008, 2009, 2010, and show me people from here making some of the salaries that are making now here, mm -hmm. or some of the different companies that are being uh, operating here. 
just so many different jobs. Um, something as simple as think about how many percentage of people were working in the governmental sector 15, 20 years ago and compare that to now, and it is a lot different. That means people now are working in jobs where they're actually developing. We know very well what a governmental job means here. It's a death sentence to never develop, unfortunately. Mahtiram, with respect, I say yeah. that. But uh, when you are forced to actually work for your job and there's no guarantee of you having a job the next year, you try to, to improve your skills, you try to move on up in the current company that you work with or try to get a skill in order for you to go to a better company. So actually, there's a good amount of jobs here, but it's still not enough. I would say, yeah, the execution of some of the economic uh, uh, plans that I see here is not always perfect, but there is uh, there's actual potential here. Yeah, in the yeah. city, the economic situation is really good. Uh, not really good, sorry, it's moving on the right track, but it needs to be uh, matched with a strong rural economy, which means factories and things that we make so that the money stays within the region. That way, naturally, people will be able to develop, to develop their lives. Well, so yeah, let, let's talk about that because you've started your own organization that focuses on this issue. Uh, and you're currently in the process of, of leaving Babylon FM? Or I didn't. I didn't leave. No, I didn't leave Babylon FM. But I took a step back. Took a step back. Um, okay. After ten years. Yeah. yeah. After ten years, I took a step back because the radio, I feel like, has always had a magical touch to it, and that that is being run and managed by young people. Mm-hmm. I've done it for ten years. I'm in my late thirties now. I don't want to be in the chair where I don't let nobody else come and and take advantage of it. So I'm taking a step back, but I'm still very much part of Babylon FM. I, I, I supervise, I advise, and I help, of course. I do shows every now and then. But I'm very happy to see now uh, young people, including M and Delawi, trying to take more of a uh, bigger role than they previously had. But, yeah, I'm involved in many different things. And, that, and the other things also led to me to make this decision. I need to focus on other stuff. I can't just be you know, in one place forever. Tell me about your new organization. Well, the NGO, yeah, that uh, we built in 2014, Shlama Foundation, Shlama means peace mm-hmm. in the Syrian language. It's, a, it's like the Hebrew word Shalom, Salam in Arabic. It was a response to ISIS pretty much. Uh, here in 2014, my life kind of changed direction because people were sleeping uh, in the streets right in front of me. Uh, Babylon Media actually became a home shelter to 100 families overnight. We stopped doing our work. We stopped doing shows. We stopped uh, producing everything, not just the radio, the TV, everything, events. And instead, we started to cater to 100 families who knocked on our, the company's doors and provided uh, shelter and food three times a day. So we became uh, providers overnight for, for families. That led to me you know, trying to help in any way I can maximally. So I figured... I grew up in Detroit. I know a whole bunch of people in Detroit, young people. So, and I know they were all contacting me because that was a time where it was new. It was a it got the attention of the entire world, especially the diaspora community. Hey, Nora, we want to help, but we don't know how. What do we, what can we do? We want to help. We want to help. We're ready. Because I don't think we'll ever see the time like 2014 in terms of just how crazy it was with ISIS taking over a chunk of our country. So I was like, okay, I'll create a foundation where you send me money. I'll do project with that money and we'll post you pictures and videos to prove to you. Because at that time, a lot of people wanted to help, but they didn't know how. They couldn't trust anybody. You know, unfortunately, there's lots of uh, mis, 
trust between people who want to donate and organizations because mm-hmm. not a lot of them are clear with their work. And they don't see that donation actually being spent. So I said, okay, let's create a system. Every single dollar we spent that you give us, we'll send you an email at the end of the time we use your donation with pictures, videos, receipts, translations of receipts, so that uh, you feel comfortable with your donation. Uh, it was a response to help the minorities, of course, because that's who was targeted uh, by ISIS. And in the eight years, we've done 240 projects. We've, usually our projects are only like $5,000 uh, on average, but USAID saw that and trusted us so much that they're like, you know what, you guys are genuine, you guys are grassroots, let's do this $1 million project with you where we're, uh, we introduce solar energy to homes and farms in the Tilkef district. And that's been our biggest project since. And to go back, one of the, I love this about your website, that you have an, your website is set up like a spreadsheet, basically, yeah. uh, where you basically lay out, and it doesn't matter how small the cash amount is, lay out every single little project, whether it's helping an individual, a family, a town, it could be anything. You have the dollar amount that you've spent on it, the result, the the subject of like exactly what you're doing. It's so irritating for me, at least, to look at enormous sections of the humanitarian sector and see the amount of money spent uh, and the lack of transparency with a lot of organizations with regards to where it goes. Uh, it's a trust issue that I think has developed not just with the community here, but internationally. Uh, there's a growing um, skepticism. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak on that a little more. I was hoping that us doing this system would lead to others to uh, be also like this, more accountable. I've seen a little bit of change being done by uh, a few organizations, but unfortunately, we, we don't see that. I wish more NGOs were like that. I, you know, I, I, we want accountability. And uh, that is important. You said it. There is a mistrust and we need to rebuild that trust. Poor people deserve the help. And uh, if your uh, expense as an organization is like the majority of the money that you're getting instead of actually helping the beneficiary, then there's obviously something wrong. Mm-hmm. So we did it in a way where to assure the people that the exact money that you are giving us is actually helping people. Thankfully, we've done a good job. We keep our admin expense at a very minimum, like at 1%. We don't have employees. We still depend on admins, uh, sorry, on volunteers, and we give them just a little bit of money for their driving and their expenses like food when they are when they are monitoring a project. So um, I hope, I hope there's more people that do that, where they put, make it into a real full opening the books of their expenses so that people... Uh, you know, trust them, give them more support, leading to more families getting help. I was wondering if you could speak to the needs of the rural community in Kurdistan and just uh, the differences of of what the communities uh, out in farms and villages need versus here. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, um, so we we do projects both in the Kurdistan region and in federal Iraq, Mm -hmm. like in Nineveh, for example. I'll talk a little more, focus more on the Kurdistan region. These areas, especially the rural areas, are so much in need, and we try to focus on them a lot more. Why? Because international organizations don't do projects there for the most part. They have offices here, and they use these offices to uh, implement projects in federal Iraq. That's great. Hey, I love it because that means more of young people here are being employed. Thank you so much, international organizations. But at the same time, 
you can't keep ignoring the suffering of these rural villages between Erbil Duhok and Slemani, especially those who are being affected currently by the uh, Turkey PKK in fighting, mm-hmm. um, by the Iranian also bombardment that happens. These villages are suffering. Their windows are being broken. Their farms are being burned. Um, they don't have any jobs. There's no development. So it's important that you try to spend as much as you can in these areas as well. So that's what we try to do is try to help those who their voice is not reached to international organizations. And rural life obviously is really difficult. Their basic needs such as they don't have water in the village because uh, it's not being fixed. The pipes are not being fixed or they're 60 years old. It continues to stay there unless somebody addresses it. Um, there's no jobs being formed and they continue to just sit around and do nothing because nobody's addressing it. Some of them ha- try to do something like they open a shop or they open a small mini factory, whatever, but without actual su- big support, it continues to say uh, not as impactful, not create as many jobs. So that's what we try to do is help them with their basic needs, such as water, electricity, um, you know, some of these villages, they're scared at night because it's so dark in these places mm-hmm. at night and there's no streetlights. Well, and I was wondering, maybe Babylon FM, when you first started out there, it was such a novel concept here. And I was wondering how you bring sort of that that spirit of trying to do something brand new to this organization. So that's the thing. When I saw Arbil, I, I realized quickly, like, there's an opportunity to do a lot of things. Uh, there is a chance for you to be the first of many things. Mm -hmm. You are now one of the first of many to have a podcast from here that goes to Spotify and other platforms. (laughs) This is development. And it's crucial that people who have ideas, who, who grew up in the West, who have a Western education, to come here and to provide something fresh, something different that will help the city develop, that will help the city become better. You are introducing the city to the rest of the world. Um, with Babylon FM, the idea was to connect the local community with the with um, the foreigners that live here, so that they are both in the same platform where they're talking and knowing about the same topics, and also, of course, introduce the local community to uh, the Western community, so that we also progress, we also develop. We should know about what's happening in Europe and in America. And we should know what Europeans and Americans like so that we can become easier friends. And something as silly as that might lead to me getting a job. Like, that, that's, this whole, that's what it's all about. Um, so that was with, with Babylon FM, why it was all English. That was the goal of it. With, uh, with Shlam, of course, it goes back to this idea of, uh, unfortunately, organizations were not effective. And there was not a, not a lot of uh, accountability missing. And I wanted to create a system where if anybody wants to help uh, anybody here and wa- has money to give it, Here's the system. Here's a guarantee for you to see where your money's going um, in order for you to uh, feel comfortable that you help somebody here. I love that open face exposure. I actually really appreciate that with your uh, with Shlama. I, I really think that's, unfortunately, the kind of an original concept. <laughs> There's lots of other things still yeah. uh, waiting for them to be tapped. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I kid you not. Like There's so many things that can be done here. So I, I encourage everybody listening, please think of that next idea Erbil and the Kurdistan region can truly benefit with. And there's lots. There's lots. 
I have a whole bunch, but I just don't have time for them. I mean, you can list a few if you want. I mean, I'll give you something as simple as this. I've been thinking about this for the longest time, but I beg for a young person right there to take advantage of this. You know very well about how, for example, fruits and vegetables here uh, are becoming so cheap because of imports yes. that the farmers here are just throwing their fruits. Mm-hmm. What can they do about it? They have delicious fruits, but they can't compete with the local market. Okay, no problem. Maybe you can't compete with the local market. Market. Maybe this whole importing from neighboring countries is too complicated to address. But how about you guys go open a small factory to take this delicious fruit and turn it into juice and give it to the people here in the city? People will go crazy, and you'll be making those farmers money. Um, when I go to a shop here, uh, all the drinks... They're all fake, by the way. They're only 10% concentrated. Are coming from as far as Thailand and uh, Turkey and Iran. You can make juice from here. <laughs> and we got the fruits. Oh, my God. You should see some of these amazing apricots that I ate when I went to Baruari Bala uh, about um, three weeks ago. Go turn this to a juice and I'll pay you 3,000 dinars, 5,000 dinars if I see it anywhere in any of these shops. Let's go. Let's move it. I love that this interview ended with you getting excited about juice. I really appreciate it. (laughs) And there's other things. We need to focus on making more things here, uh, leading to money more staying in our city and uh, us being more sustainable. It's important. I'm so optimistic. I know a lot of young people listening uh, are not as optimistic. I was too lost in life and hated myself in the 20s. But I promise you, there is a light in the end of the the tunnel. Um, You have to be part of that solution. You have to contribute. And once you contribute, then you will benefit um, in the end. Well, Noah, thank you for your energy and your optimism. It's my pleasure. I wish everybody listening the best of luck, whatever they're doing. And I would, I would also say this. Hey, uh, get in touch with people. If you're one of these young people who doesn't know what to do with their lives, get in touch with this podcast. Send them a message. Hey, I have an idea. Would you like to highlight it for me? Would you like to send your production team to go see what I'm doing? Or get in touch with me. Do you need any advice? Maybe you need an investor. Maybe we can help you get these investors. Let's go. It's time to work. I got my sleeves rolled up. <laughs> All right, Noah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Cheers. Bye. I'd like to thank Noor so much for coming in and talking with me. I'm going to go ahead and leave a link to Shlama Foundation in the description below. I really recommend checking out their work. I think they're doing fantastic local community work, and Noor's been working very hard on it. Uh, So if you're interested, you can check that out below. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network, and you can check out our website at kurdistanin.net. And if you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, whatever podcast platform you might be listening on. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Inside Kurdistan.